Welcome to the Charles Thorngren Show. I commend you for being here. Uh, we've made it through a week of financial Armageddon. Uh, and today's show is proudly brought to you by Legacy Precious Metals. Welcome to the Charles Thorngren Show by Legacy Precious Metals. Let's talk Silicon Valley Bank. Let's talk Signature Bank. Let's talk about the handful of other mid to smaller sized banks that are now threatening um, our financial institution. How did we get here? How do we avoid it in the future? And more importantly, how do we protect ourselves from the further collapses that people are talking about to come? Those are some of the big questions we want to discuss today. We'll start with Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank uh, is an interesting story. It was once the darling of the small to mid-side banks. So SVV Bank started in uh, 1983, and it's good to realize what it was at the time. It was started specifically to service the financial needs of tech startups. And it grew from that period of time to becoming probably the largest at one point, financing almost half of all venture-backed technology companies in the United States. The interesting thing is it was started over a poker game. It had a dubious start to begin with. A couple guys sitting around playing poker, risky thing, and said, you know what we should do? Let's create a bank. So when we look at it from the beginning, it had a dubious start. Getting us to here, it's not too surprising when you look at that fact. All of those startups there in the Silicon Valley, they, they get uh, the surprising benefit of money. And in 2019, the money was flowing. If you had a tech idea, if you had a new company idea and it had anything to do with technology, there was funding available. You get all these new companies with these new greatest ideas and they would get funded and they didn't know where to put it. Conventional banking didn't work for them because they needed something different. This was a company that had no um, profits, it had no sales, it was just a concept, it was an idea. So traditional banking really didn't fit the bill for them. And these are where this venture capital type bank comes into play. You have your idea, you go there and you, you say you, you, you uh, raise $50 million on your initial funding for, you, for your new widget um, that had an app attached to it. So you'd go there and you say, hey, I've got a widget I'm making and the, uh, the cyber world loves it. So I'm going to make that, and, and I've got money. So can you be my bank? And Silicon Valley Bank said, sure, I'll be your bank. And they'd take that $50 million, and they'd say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you funded so you can run your business, and then we're going to monitor this money for you. We're, we're going to make it safe for you. And they took the traditional route, right? They pretended to be a bank, uh, even though they're a venture capital firm. So they went out and they bought you know, laddered long-term investments, treasuries, tips. And at the time, you had an interest rate of really low, one, one and a quarter percent. And they put that money in there because that's what banks do. They put money in there and they, they make their return and they keep all the services afloat. And, you know, they protect your money through investing. That's what banks typically do. And which is fine as long as interest rates stay low. But we know that didn't happen. And that is part one of their demise. They didn't have the foresight to project what would happen if interest rates didn't stay low. What happens if things aren't normal? 
The next problem we have is that they went very heavy into the crypto world. This was one of the banks of choice if you were dealing in any uh, form of uh, cryptocurrency. Um, and we know what happened with that. You know, we, we've seen the correction. We've seen how difficult it has been for the cryptos to maintain some form of stability. Now, in 2019, it was great. Everything was going high. And you, you had these, these people putting money in there, and they were buying cryptos. And Silicon Valley Bank was was making trades for stable coins with them. Um, and you had all these kids who put a couple thousand dollars in, and now they became millionaires. So, obviously, they went and kept the money where they were doing business, SVB. Now when crypto's correct, all that value is gone. But here's the thing about banks most people don't understand. They don't just put your money in a vault. They invest it like we said. They went out and they bought all of these long-term safe vehicles that now when we look at today didn't offer the protection because who wants 1.5% return when you can get 4% return on a government bond? So now they're left with an undervalued asset that they've leveraged. That's the thing about banking. They don't sit on your money. They loan it out. They invest it in their safe investments, and then they go and loan against that valuation, but they do it to multiples that are unrealistic. Six times what they have in cash, six times what they have in treasuries. That's the way a bank works. Some, some of them go as much as 8%. So you, you take that scenario and now you look at it and say, oh, wow, they've leveraged to the point where they're six times what they have under management. So what happens when the market's correct? What happens when the interest rate's correct and that valuation's no longer there? That $100 million you have in 1.5% bonds is no longer worth $100 million. Because if you go to try to sell it because people need money, you're not going to get $100 million for it. That yield's too low. See, when you're buying bonds, you're looking for the yield to return. All right? So there's 4% out there now. Why would anyone go out of their way and say, I'll take 1.5% and hold that that note for another six years when I can go out there right now and get 4% for 10 years. So when you're liquidating in this bond world and these, this long-term, you know, um, income producing returns, you have to match that yield if you want to liquidate it. So there's only one way to do that. When you have a bond, the investment comes down to the money you put in, the length of time, and the promised return. Now, the only thing that you can change on that bond to make it more palatable is the money, how much it costs, because the length of time is set. The return is set. So for me, as an investor, if I'm going to go out and buy that bond from you, I'm not saying that I wouldn't, but it comes under the caveat, I'm going to pay less for it. You do need to make up that other 2.5% return per year in the cost of the bond. So instead of it being worth $100 million, those bonds are now worth around $68, $70 million. 
because you have to make up that deficit in principle. You have to create that extra 2%, 2.5% in the principal value of the bond. So that's horrible. $100 million is now worth $70 million. But that's just the beginning of it. That $70 million has been leveraged, right? That $100 million was leveraged. So that, <clears throat> that $70 million, you've now taken a $30 million loss times six. Leveraging is a bad thing if you don't do it right. You now have a debt that is actually greater than your initial principal investment. And this is where the trouble comes in. And it comes in because they're liquidating this because people want their money back. Everyone's looking at what's going on in the economy. People are concerned. So what do they do? They say, you know what? I think I'm just going to take my money out of there and I'm going to do something different with it. So now they go and ask for their money. And now the bank falls upon a shortage of cash. That's why we see that the... Uh, the Federal Reserve Banks opened up the window, opened up that overnight window, so that there are other banks out there besides what we've talked about, Signature and S Silicon Valley Bank, that had to go and borrow money, right? And they, they do it at the overnight fun funds rate, where they borrow money overnight to meet the demands they need for the cash balance they must maintain. But here with the Silicon Valley and a Signature, the problem is so big that the overnight window isn't good enough. Hence, the Federal Reserve and the federal government comes in and says, you know what, we're taking over the bank. It's going to fail. If we let it happen naturally, it's going to cause shockwaves into the financial institution, and it will cause other banks to fail as well. And this is very reminiscent of uh, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, George Bailey standing out there in front of the bank saying, no, no, take what you need, but don't take it all. There's no one to do that in this day and age. So now you're left with a scenario of how do you manage that? And this is what, you know, happened in, in 1929. Um, you know, we went and we had a pretty massive turnaround in a financial institution. And it caused, you know, part of the Great Depression. Um, it was the stock market collapsed and banks went out of business. There was nothing there. But there was no FDIC then. If you lost, you lost. That was it. That was the risk you took. And it was okay because then it was considered only to be the wealthy people who did it, right? So the common person didn't think much about it, but it affected business to the point where we rolled into a part of the Great Depression that, that really um, established much of the new banking legislation that's come in, in, in the last hundred years. It's, it's coming from that perfect scenario with uh, the bankruptcies and, and the, the stock market crash in, in 1929. Um, New York's Bank of the United States actually collapsed from that whole scenario. That was in 1931. And it was the um, single largest failure. $200 million in deposits were lost. No one had ever seen that before. And that's part of the move that we saw to creating a standard of government that really involved the government telling you what banks can and can't do. It established a lot of rules. Until then, they were kind of independent. You know, they were, they were, they were protective and they were sought after because of the name of the bank itself. 
But this led us into the, the part where we now said, okay, let's create some form of protection for the investor so we don't go through this. And when we created the, uh, the FDIC, it was put in place to prevent just this. The time, it was a much smaller limit than we have now. Um, you know, right now that the FDIC, uh, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Com- uh, Corporation, so it's its own entity, um, it covers up to $250,000 in account, okay? doesn't cover losses. If you were trading, that trading loss is yours. But this is meant for those who are in cash or invested in a government bond or a CD within the bank. So these, this insurance um, has always been paid for by the bank itself. That's part of the fees the bank charges you to maintain the money. They go in and, and they pay this insurance to maintain the bank and maintain its, its strength and its stability. The question you have with, like, the FDIC right now is that um, we had President Biden come out and say every investor investor will be made whole. That's not the way that works. And that runs us into another problem. So now it's not the insurance on the account that's covering investors. President Biden has made it the government's responsibility to protect all of those investors now, I personally doubt that they can do it, but this is what's being said. For us to cover that loss, that means you and I, the taxpayers, are going to have to bail out this institution that didn't manage its money correctly. And it's going to have to pay all of these tech startup companies who may or may not have succeeded to begin with, all of these crypto traders who had massively uh, trading accounts on risky ventures, and they're going to get all their money back. And it's going to be bore by us, the regular guy. You're going to have blue-collar workers covering the risky Internet and crypto investor. It's troublesome. It's troublesome. We'll hear much of what we heard in 2007 and 2008. Too big to fail. I say that's hogwash. You invest, you take the risk. The risk is yours. Having the people of the United States pay your debt, pay pay off your loss, brings us to a place to where we will have to create more money and we will further increase the main problem to begin with, inflation. If we go and create money to bail out these particular investors, we are now creating an, an additional inflationary process in a time when we can ill afford that because we can't manage the inflation we have now without the creation of new money. So it leaves us in a very unstable place. It brings us back to the conversations about AIG, the insurance company that was too big to fail, that led us and started part of the process of the 2007 collapse. And some of you out there still remember that. The turnaround in the markets, people losing 60% of their valuations in in the equities markets. Losing retirement accounts, not being able to retire, taking a, a decade to get back to where you were. And folks, that's the big thing. The thing you can't afford if, if you're looking at a retirement account 
is the loss of time. That's the main way we make money. We compound our money. So it's really important that we don't lose that time. And that was a decade gone. You know, going back to the Biden question of him coming out and saying, we're going to make you whole. You have to wonder, how far does that go? Is it every bank? Does every bank now get to be irresponsible with their job of managing your money? Is it going to be a situation like we saw in the past? You know, if you remember 10 years ago, we just started that whole situation of, oh, let's have the bank buy the trading company, right? The equities market was so bad, and, and banks were in trouble, and they, and, and they got the bailout because they were too big to fail. So we had the committee come up and say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have every trading company, every equity trading company, Merrill Lynch, J.P. Morgan, all the names. We're going to make them part of the banking uh, system because we can bail out the banks. We can't bail out Merrill Lynch. We can't bail out J.P. Morgan because all those are those are stock companies. Those are investment firms. It's not within our protection to do that. The FDIC can't do that. The federal government can't do that. So what happened was they said – guess what? We're going to create mergers, and this is how you get Bank of America slash Merrill Lynch. This is how you get J.P. Morgan Chase. Every bank got issued their partner. And all that money, all that quantitative easing money that flowed in the system for, de- for almost a decade went through those banks. And most of it made it into those trading accounts, not into the hands that it was supposed to. So we look at this and say, is this happening again? Because this is where it starts. The problem is all the big banks and all the big equity firms are already taken. So do the smaller banks get absorbed as well now? Well, that's part of the process, right? You, you see now there, <clears throat> there's interest by HSBC Bank and maybe picking up uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Here's the problem with that. Silicon Valley Bank like I said, it's, it's the bank to the, the tech startup. It's the bank to the crypto world. But HSBC Bank is a Chinese bank. Hang Seng Bank of China. Do we really want to create a scenario where a foreign nationality bank provides the money for all the technology that we're creating here in Silicon Valley in the United States? I don't think that's a good combination. I don't think it gives us the separation that we need. I think it really puts us in a scenario to where the issues we have with China now just get compounded. And it's a not an attractive look. It, it, it's something that we have to ask the question. What does that garner down the road? What trouble does that garner down the road now? If some of this tech is on our phones, it's on our computers... What is What data is being stored and taken? We already have these issues. I mean, there's the issue with TikTok. And, and this scenario could lead it even further and develop it even bigger than it is now. So it's something to be really careful about. And saying that we don't want to let HSBC buy that out, now we, we say who does if we don't want the government to do it and 
HSBC doesn't, we don't want them to do it. How do we go about fixing this scenario? And it's a difficult thing. You're going to be looking at, uh, you know, maybe some private uh, equity funds, BlackRock, things like that. But all that comes with the loss of regulation that you get from a regular bank. Even though this bank didn't necessarily follow it, there needs to be some guidelines. There needs to be some control, and we'll lose all of that. Something that I hear pretty, pretty frequently in the conversations around SVB Bank is, why was this allowed to happen? Whose fault is it? Where was the regulators? And it's a good question, but you have to understand the regulator's job only does so much. This didn't turn into a problem until it was a problem. It happened very, very quick. A regulator doesn't determine without a true audit of the bank what it invests in. They're just there to make sure that they have the capital requirement required. They need to have this much money based on the balance of the bank and what it's invested in. This is their cash reserve that's needed. Because each bank will invest as it sees fit. It's a private entity or a public entity. Is there oversight? Yes. But not into the specifics of, of the loans that they give out, but into the management and how much reserve is necessary and required. And we will see, just like we have in the past, that there will be this big run now for every bank to prove that it has the cash reserves and some will fail and they'll need to borrow money um, and it will lead to more of the same things. It's also going to lead to a scenario where banks may not be so free to loan money out. You have a scenario where we have interest rates up. So if you if you as a company produce things and you need to have a cash outlay until you sell the product, you typically need to do that through a bank loan. Interest rates being up, and now if they put additional regulations on it, you could see this also be the cause that some companies go out of business. They won't have the funds available to them. And a bank loan or, or a line of credit is part of that funding. They may not be able to get the funding they need because of the new regulations that are now being imposed on banks. So it creates a scenario to where we could be seeing the beginning of a reduction of capital into the economy. Even though we're printing more and more, right? And I know that sounds bizarre, but like I said, we have seen it in the past. In 2008, when they started their quantitative easing and, and they had all that money flowing through the system, none of it really made it to the average person and the average small business. It's going to be through the banks to the bigger firms or they're going to, the banks are going to hold it. Right, you're going to see banks now if they can get four percent with no risk from the federal government. There's no reason to give it to a company. So this this flies in the face of, of the statements made uh, about bailing everyone out. You can't just bail everybody out. It costs us the people too much money. So you look at that and you say, "Wow, I can't trust the banks now." Yes and no. Right. There's 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 always some research you can do. You can dig into the financials. You're just going to have to put some time in. You're going to you're going to have to go to your bank and say, what is your evaluation criteria? What are your cash reserves? What is the manner at which you're protecting my money? And, and you'll be surprised. I think if, if if you take the time and do that, many of you may not be so pleased with the, the banking industry that you have or the bank that you have in the industry. You're left looking, saying, OK, now what do I do? You know, um, I know one of the old chestnuts used to be, you know, get real estate. 
Well, we're saying that's a problem, too. And Signature Bank, you know, that's another failure recently in New York. Had 40 branches. Um, quite a large bank. And it dealt mostly with real estate. Uh, it, what, 40 branches, it had over $110 billion dollars. Um, and $88 billion in, in deposits at the end of 2022. They just recently started playing in the crypto world, too. Now, I'm not going to say crypto was the full reason that this bank failed. Part of it is interest rates are up. Real estate's much tougher now. You know, the real estate loan, um, significantly higher than it was just last year. If you have a, a variable, if you're in real real estate business and you use a, a flexible rate, a variable rate, your, your payment suddenly doubled in the course of a year for the same property, same loan. So these are some of the reasons that, you know, Signature Bank failed. But again, it leads to another failure, and, and it's, this is us looking at, again, an alternative investment. So when we look at that, we say, where do you go? How do you, how do you judge the bank? And it's tough. You, you do want to ask those questions. But then you also want to say, I'm going to take personal responsibility as well. I'm going to diversify myself. And... and Bonds, they're good, right? But we're left in a scenario where it's going to be hard to get the best bond available for the next several years because we have interest rates going up. The next issue is going to be better than this issue, this issue. The one after that's going to be even better than that previous issue. So you're going to be left holding a bond that's underperforming the market, and you have to be okay with that. You have to say, this is good enough. Even if this bond now, the same 10-year bond that I buy today, even if the one I buy four, you know, four months from now is up a full percentage points more, I'm going to be happy with that less of a return. Most people don't have that ability to do that. They don't, they, they don't think like that. We as people don't think like that. We're thinking, that one's worth five. This one's worth four. I should have that one. Again, that leads you to that loss of principle. So this is the place where people step up and say, I need safety. And I'm going to tell you, there's nothing more safe than precious metals. This is where precious metals comes in, in the worst case scenario. As we see more and more banks getting ready to possibly take an over, possibly close, gold, silver, it's there for you. It offers you protection. When you see the equities market getting, getting spun, up one day, down the next day, knowing that everyone says the market has to come down because inflation is not done yet. This is where precious metals comes in. Cryptocurrency, we don't even want to talk about that. That's so volatile. That's always been kind of a trading platform. But with that, this is where precious metals comes in. When you look at this world and realize there's such risk out there that even banks can't succeed, this is telling you, protect yourself. Take this personally. Make it your own personal investment strategy to protect yourself and your family. Give precious metals the opportunity to do its job. Call Legacy Precious Metals. Go to the website, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Get that protection. Thank you for listening to The Charles Thorngren Show by Legacy Precious Metals. Legacy Precious Metals helps investors protect their retirements and build wealth through investments in gold, silver, and precious metals. Whether you want metals shipped directly and discreetly to your house, or you want to roll your existing IRA into a gold-backed IRA, Legacy Precious Metals is the company you can trust. To speak to an expert, call 866-473-6204 or visit LegacyPMInvestments.com to download our free investing guide.